I just want to pray and ask God to bless kind of the looking at his word over the next couple minutes. And Minda, if you would do me the favor and help me to remember that the exhortation that you had about uh, Lazarus being dead in the tomb may need to feature kind of in the way that we um, respond to God later on. But uh, Father, we do thank you for the power of your word. And uh, Lord, we do want to recall that your creation was created by the combination of your spirit hovering over the deep and you speaking your word and that things are formed by your word and and, uh, there's power, infinite power in your word. Uh, Universes, galaxies were created by what comes out of your mouth. And Lord, we thank you that as we gather together as your people, as seemingly insignificant as it, as it is, that same power is still resides in your word. And Lord, we want to pray that uh, as your word is spoken, that there would be power released in the lives of people, that things of this world that would hold us down or that would in any way uh, limit us from the fullness of what you have ordained for us, that those things be broken and uh, that we would know the liberty. You said that we should know your word, and your word makes us free. And Lord, we want to pray the power of your word to set your people free. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we are looking over the past number of weeks at Jesus in particular and what he did as a picture into who he is. And uh, you can tell a lot about a person not only by what they say, but in a sense, more what they did. And that's what we've been looking at, especially out of the Gospel of Luke, is going through and looking at what did Jesus do, and by extension, discovering more of who he is. And I believe that as the human heart truly perceives the reality of the true person of Jesus, who he really is, something of a heart of exuberant gratitude and worship is the natural response. And um, the beauty th- beautiful thing about that is as we worship God, we dwell in God's presence. And uh, so that's, that's what Jesus and, and even the discovery of Jesus is all about, is actually tapping into uh, the, the person of God and dwelling with God. And so today we're going to touch on that very thing which is this, is that what Jesus did was he gained access for us into a place that had been forbidden prior to that, the place of God's presence where he dwells. He completely obliterated everything that divided us from God and has given us access completely now in this age, and that is the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel was not so that we would have another moral code to live by, uh, superior moral code to live by, superior to other religions or whatever. The purpose of the gospel is to give us access. That was the point of the gospel, to remove that barrier between man and God so that we could come into his presence. And as, as much as we know that, I think sometimes we forget the simple reality of that, that God's purpose is for us to be with him. And uh, so I'm, I'm praying that uh, we're going to experience that. If we haven't already experienced, experience it more even later today and uh, move from this place into a lifestyle 
of dwelling with God. Sound good? So there were, let me just explain this. Our default, default posture as humans is to not submit to God. And what I mean by that is our nature as children of Adam who sinned and ever since then, however many thousands of years it's been, our default posture is to move from a place of submission. Would you agree with that? I, I see some nods going on. I don't hear any more cat calls, but I've heard some no seen some nods. Would you agree with that? Our default position over and over, we continuously move from a place of glorious surrender to Jesus, and then within a day, we move into a place where we, here's the thing, usually we fear submission to God. And uh, why do we default to this place? There's a couple things that I've noticed in my own life. One is it requires faith. Submission to God requires that we are placing our confidence in something that we can't see, and in that world, there's a loss of control. And that's scary to us. And so our default position continuously keeps on being to kind of turn away from God, and maybe we'll, we'll want to put a Christian label over it. We'll still want to go to church. We'll still want to even pray, perhaps. But that thing of surrender is our default mechanism is to kind of move away from that. Anything that we do in the way of living this life outside of a place of surrender is false religion. And I hope I want to allow that reality to sink in. So we talk about false religion and Christians are great at like saying that we've got the truth and they don't and you know th this religion and that religion and it's heinous and what we need to pray over Detroit is the obliteration of the spirit of Islam and all this kind of stuff. We, we you know I'm, I'm not saying that whatever my point is, we so easily point the finger at false religion. False religion is this. Anything that is attempting to put a Christian label, service to God, but is outside, moved from that place of sweet surrender to Jesus. And our default posture is so easily to move from that place, and every time we do, we move into a place of false religion. The Bible, as Jason talked about last week, there's, it references true religion, or another um, translation would say pure religion and undefiled. But I'm talking about false religion. And it's not just this religion and that religion, it's us outside of submission to Jesus. And uh, so in the garden, I'm just going to kind of point, just go through some thoughts as we move towards a point. In the garden, as we said two weeks ago, there were two trees in the garden. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree of life, from the point of the fall, was, was uh, or we, rather, were separated from access to that tree of life, representing life with God. If I can read this, and if you can go with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. I just want to read this and uh, make a comment on it. So it says, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. This is just after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit which the Lord had forbidden and sin had entered into the picture. And this is what God says. And now, unless he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken so he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way 
to guard the way to the tree of life. So we've got true trees here, and I just want to remind us of kind of the idea of what these trees are. We've got the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How many of you have one of those planted in your backyard, in your urban, urban garden? No, no one has a tree of knowledge of good and evil? Okay. So, so it's kind of an odd name for a tree, but the idea of this tree is a life source that you can partake of, and it becomes a part of who you are. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is simply this. It's living by the law, the knowledge of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. That will never produce life. Am I right? It may produce a modified behavior that somehow puts boundaries around how wild we get with our lives and how sinful we get, but it will never produce God's life. And in fact, let me ask you this. Jesus, when he came, did he just simply walk and conform and show perfect submission to a law? Well, no. Actually, even some of the Pharisees argued that he was breaking the law because he ate the showbread from the temple, or rather he was eating grain from, the, from a field on the Sabbath day, which was technically breaking the law. But what he did show and express was divine life, life that was born out of intimacy with God, being led and empowered by the Spirit of God, um, that that the law can never produce. So you've got the, law, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil over here, but then you've got the tree of life. And the horrible thing is that when man sinned, the access to the tree of life was forbidden. So what is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? It's the law, it's right and wrong, it's rules and regulations. When I was down in uh, Cobbtown just a few days ago, um, my, uh, if you don't mind me mentioning you, John David, I know you're coloring in your book, so you don't mind anyway. So I'm just talking about some other John David right now. So, so one of my sons, John David by name, uh, said, said to uh, our friend Mike, uh, Mike said some comment in his deep southern twang, and, and John David said, what? Because he couldn't hear him. And, uh, and then John, Mike graciously continued and repeated what he said. And, and afterwards, I just pulled John David aside, and I said, hey, buddy, you know, um, actually, in the South, that where we are right now, if you don't hear somebody and they're an adult, it would be better to say sir or ma'am, but you don't have to do that. It, instead, what would be better is if you just say, instead of saying what, say excuse me, because that just shows respect, or ask them maybe to politely ask them to repeat it or whatever. And so he was cool with that, and we went on. So the law, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, would be handing over a a booklet to John David, and on it says, if an adult, adult rather, sorry, uh, adult says something and you don't hear, then say, excuse me, or sir, or ma'am. As opposed to tree of life, which would look more like a father God walking with you in relationship and taking moments to teach and impart something of understanding, of wisdom, and a heart of respect for people around and uh, to train him to be able to have something that's called favor with people. In other words, good, good relationships with people. You understand? Make sense? So you've got just a moral code of you ought to do this and the heart of the father training and, and, and uh, imparting something of his own wisdom and own nature into the child. That's the difference, my friends, between tree of life tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree of life that is what Jesus has restored to us. Not a law, 
And as we said last week, it's not that the law is not good. Jesus even said every jot and tittle of the word of God will remain and endure forever. Not one jot and tittle will be lost. The law is not bad. It's just that Jesus came and fulfilled the law. So where did the problem come? I, I'm building towards something. Just, you know, there's quite a few pieces that you might need to put together in your head if you, can, if you can follow this. Where did the problem come of the separation between us and this tree of life? So I want, I want to, uh, I'm hoping that we can see this simple truth that the problem actually came from man and women coming out from under the government, the authority, the leadership the protective covering of God the Father. In other words, like what I said before, our default position is to move away from what? Thank you, Jace. Out from under submission. What Jesus has re restored us to is a place, if that is what created the problem in the first place, then wouldn't the resolution be coming back under the governance of heaven? And the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is that the kingdom come, his will be done, his will, his leadership, his authority, the demonstration of what he has willed to come on earth as it is in heaven. Now you tell me, can his kingdom come where his kingship isn't recognized? In fact, the very kingdom is the recognition of his kingship. That is the resolution. So if you'll look with me, Genesis chapter 3... <clears throat> Just to, just to kind of reference this out of the scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. What happened there? That's the man and the woman knowing that God had said... Don't eat from that fruit. Why? Not just because I don't eat from that fruit. Don't eat from that fruit, God said, because in that day you shall surely die. In other words, I love you. I want you to be alive with me. Don't eat from that fruit. And what they did was they were tempted into a place of ultimately distrusting God. We've talked about this in, in, in previous weeks. Distrusting God, ultimately believing the lie that God doesn't really love you he cannot really be trusted. And in the gospel, we see Jesus going to that place right there, the cross, paying the penalty for us, the ultimate expression of love and grace, so that we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt, he does love me, and therefore he can be trusted. But ultimately, my friends, if our gospel presents anything about Jesus other than this, that the conclusion of his love for me and his trust in me is that I surrender to him, then that's a false gospel. The gospel brings me back into the governance of heaven with a father who loves me, that does me good, wants my welfare, and wants to bless the earth through me. That is what we're, we're aiming for, and that is the the reality of this thing called the holiest of holies where God's presence dwells. See, it's not just a place where we come in and submit and Jesus squashes us and forces us to do his will. It's a place where we encounter divine love, where he loves us 
And in that place, we pour out our love to him, and we encounter something of him transmitting into us his wisdom and his nature and his heart and his love that we can go from that place, living out from that place, demonstrating his will, just like Jesus. Sounding good? So this is the nature of the New Testament, New Covenant. This is what Jesus did. So the problem was stepping out from under his leadership, right? Thank you, Minda. It was. And there are two trees in that garden. One was a conformity, producing righteousness through just conforming to a, a moral code, and another is divine life. And that is what was missing. And now I want to ask you to open up to Matthew chapter 27, and let's find out what exactly happened according to scriptures when Jesus finally gave up the ghost, breathed his last on the cross, some stuff went down. Because as we've said in times past, Jesus was not simply a man, although he was fully a man. He was the son of man, and that's an important thing to know. He wasn't only a man. We're talking about the son of God. And the Son of God hung on a cross, and he actually died. And in that place, he became the substitute for man, paying the penalty for all of our sin on that place. And in the moment when he finally died, Matthew 27, verses 50 through 51, if you can read along with me, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit, dead. Not like dead halfway or he was dead, body dead, gave it up, and then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earthquake and the rocks were split. And so, as we said before, the veil that they're talking about, we can just kind of read over that and not really understand, the veil was a huge curtain that stood in the temple there in Jerusalem at the bottom of that hill stood in a, a, the, the temple in which kind of the ultimate theme of the entire Old Testament was the construction and the building of this temple. Why? Because it represented something of where God dwelled in the earth and where the law that God had given that demonstrated the will of God, the ways of God, was inside behind that, that veil. And as we said before, no one was allowed to go past that veil except for the high priest once a year. And as Jason said last week, he was even risking his life to go through that veil because if there was any sin of any kind in his life, he could be struck down dead in that moment. That was a holy place. Man was not allowed into that place. And in the moment that Jesus died, Matthew records that that veil was rent from top to bottom. Meaning that what had been accomplished on the cross gave access into this holy place that a holy God could not cohabitate with the sin of man, yet Jesus and what he had did in that place somehow made a way for us to be able to cohabitate with God, cross through that veil, and be in his presence and have active relationship with him once again. Now, let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, if you will, and, and we're also going to look at chapter 10. And then we're going to um, spend some time activating what it is that we're talking about. Because at the end of the day, my words right now 
don't produce anything as long as we're just sitting here and listening to sermons. And I'm not interested in sermonizing. I'm interested in the, in the, in the temple of the Lord, which in the New Testament we now understand is the church. Not a temple made with human hands, the church of the living God, which is people. And the Bible calls us living stones being fitted together. I'm interested in the church, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God on the earth being built so that Detroit can again see who their creator and maker is like and experience him. That's what I'm interested in. So as long as we're just sermonizing and, you know, that's a great preach. Thanks. Thanks, Pastor Paul. Cool. Good word. That, whatever. That means nothing. But if we can receive what we're doing and live in it, and receive the truth of it, his temple can go from one stone onto the next level and onto the next level, meaning he comes closer to manifesting himself in Detroit. And I think we all want that. So look with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. In other words, this temple in the Old Testament was all a physical picture, just like the parables of Jesus were Jesus coming, in a sense, stooping to our level using physical images that we would understand, farming and trees and, and things like that. The temple was a physical material picture that man could understand so that we could see a copy of what the real thing was about. But the real temple of the Lord, the real presence of God, was never intended to be stuck in a building, as ridiculous as that sounds that God who created all things would be relegated to a temple, but rather he has chosen to make his dwelling place people because we are in fact the apex of his creation, his sons and daughters. We are what the rest of creation is all about in the first place. And this was copies of the true, but he didn't just enter into that place when it says that veil in Matthew 27 was rent from top to bottom. He didn't go into that place although he maybe spiritually did. I don't know how the veil was rent. It says this, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, you know, I think sometimes we do something kind of, maybe kind of like this. We can receive Jesus and we can be kind of doing our Christian thing and we can be praying and and, and, and we're maybe in our own efforts, maybe perhaps we've been trying to find God or whatever, and then Jesus does this amazing thing that I just described, and, and he goes into the presence of heaven, God himself for us, and then he appears to us, and, and, we, and we, can, we re receive him. And if I can ask the question again, what was the problem again that got us into the problem in the first place? The issue of submission, so we don't trust, and our default mechanism is that we move from a place of submission. And so we as Christians can be in this place where we're praying, and Jesus manifests himself to us. He, he speaks to us, perhaps, and, and we don't like what he says. Maybe it causes us to be uncomfortable. How many of you have ever experienced that before? I mean, how many of you think, I mean, the, this is the same Jesus that asked Peter to step out of a boat, Right? And uh, I don't, how do you think Peter felt about that request? So, and this is the same Jesus. He still leads us in the same impossible ways. And sometimes he uh, speaks to us and we feel kind of, uh, you know, 
And, uh, and, but the way we respond is we, you know, kind of smile and, hey, Jesus, and, oh, no, I don't want to do that, but I think I'll pray instead. In fact, I think I'm going to give some money to the poor. I don't want to do that, but I'm going to do some good things for you, and you'll be, you'll be proud of me. I will lead worship. Sorry, Jason, I just looked at you. I'm going to lead worship. Now, surely I'm, like, good with you leading worship. In fact, I'll lead worship and help set up in a church plant. You know, instead of going to that mega church where they've got it all sorted out for me, I'm going to do crazy stuff for him. But, but that thing that you're asking me to do, uh, I'll, I'll do something else. False religion. False. As every bit as false as any other thing that Christians would want to point their finger at. Now, I'm not trying to bring a heavy on us, maybe a little bit. I'm wanting to, to ex- expose clearly what it is that all of us really want. None of us want the false. We want the real thing. What does the real thing look like? Submission to Jesus because he loves us and he is the way. He doesn't only know the way, he himself is the way. So Jesus goes into the presence of God for us. And uh, if you'll look with me, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. We've got four points I shouldn't have said that. That already sounds long and laborious. It's not, I guarantee you. Four things that I want to draw out of this incredible passage of Scripture related to what we're talking about. Jesus has removed the barrier to God. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 through 22. You guys doing okay? I know we don't like the, the term submission. And honestly, maybe there would be a, a, a word that would be more contemporary and receivable. I'm game for that. But at the end of the day, Jesus is Lord. And the gospel is, is, is pointing us to come back to God through Jesus' lordship. And the more we really understand his goodness and his lordship, that becomes our home. The place that Jesus received, opened up for us, this place called the holiest of holies, that place is entered into by following Jesus not by high-fiving him and saying, well done, dude, I'll make my own way in here. That place is the lordship of Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, 19 through 22, let's read it quickly. Therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want to encourage you right now in this place, Jesus is still doing the same things that he did 2,000 years ago, and he is still offering his hand, even right now in this moment, to you and to me to lead us into those same amazing things. He wants to take our rags and, ab- <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to say. Take our rags and turn them into riches. That is not what I was trying to say. Take our, our ashes and turn them into beauty. That's much more biblical. He is still the same today, right now. The way has been made. His offer is still out to us if we will follow him. And I, my hope and my prayer is that we can somehow make that contagious. And the more you and I actually respond really to Jesus, not going to church, not doing all the stuff that we as Christians ought to do, 
Jesus. Really following Jesus. What's that? Yes, that would be good. The more we truly do that, the more it becomes addictive. And in fact, if I could just, before we continue with that verse, you know, we did this thing over here with this, you know, kind of, hey, Jesus, kind of, you know, I think I'll go pray rather and I'll do this other thing. What's the solution to that? What would be the, what Jesus actually wants is for us to take his hand, his offer, and, and he is, wants, wants to pull us closer and say, hey, you know, look over there. There's some stuff I want to do. And so me and Jesus, he leads me over here and we kind of do this thing together. And then, hey, over there, there's Tamora. There's something that he wants to do with her. And, and I don't know what's going on, but Jesus and I come over here and bless Tamora. And now something amazing is done in her life. That's the real thing. It's not just, Jesus, I'll, uh, I'm not going to do that. I'll go rather give $250 to the poor. And surely that's going to way out, like instead of doing what you did, I'll do what I'm going to do. It's putting your hand in his hand, letting him follow, and he will, follow, he will lead you into some things that are uncomfortable almost every time. But every time, you'll, you're going to find out the other side of that obedience is Jesus. It's him. It's the reality of him. It's an expression of him. So real quick, let's, let's look into this scripture. Having boldness to enter, let us draw near. The first point I just want to make. Having boldness to enter, let us draw near. So two things just I want to say about that. Having boldness to enter, let us draw near. Firstly, that is what we are about to do in a few seconds together as a church family. Take the boldness that we have, draw near to him. Secondarily, that is the way that we live. That's the way that we walk out the call of God. That's not some moment that we do on Sunday. That's not some moment even that I just do in my home, although that's very important. It's how we live in a state of drawing near with boldness to come into this place that God has made available to us. Second point, boldness. Why does it all suggest boldness? Because if you would read the context of that Hebrews 9 and 10, you would find out that people were completely unworthy because of sin of, of coming, going into this place called the holiest of holies. They were relegated to a place outside, disconnected from God, and they couldn't have boldness because every single person had sin, right? Now you and I, even down to today, can still feel as though we can't enter into the holiest of holies. Why? Because we know that we're not perfect. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And that feeling can creep over us and make us feel as we're worshiping God or as we're want, feeling like we're supposed to go to Him that we somehow aren't good enough and we look at ourselves and me, me, me. And God actually wants to say, I don't want you to even look at yourself. I already know how filthy you, you are. Maybe that's a bad way of saying it, but it's a true way of saying it. I already know. Don't look at yourself because you don't get into my presence. My son got you into my presence. We aren't perfected to go into the presence of God. We get perfected by coming into the presence of God. So come. Come. Number three. He says, and I love this, a new and living way. It was new, obviously, because there was an old, a previous covenant that God had made that was based on a law that was of a different nature altogether. This new covenant that had been created by a new and living way is defined by the fact that it's living. 
that it's not dead, it's not just rules and regulations, it's alive. We're not submitting to an impersonal, in a sense, heartless list of rules and regulations. We are submitting ourselves to a person who is alive and loves us. It is a living way. Uh, let me just make this clear. When I, when I, and I've told this story many times, when I gave my heart to the same Jesus that we're talking about, the age of 17, I didn't know all the church stuff. I didn't know all the doctrine that I was supposed to know and that you all know. I, you know, I, I, I didn't know any of that stuff. All I knew in the most simplest form, on my bed, age of 17, probably going to get high the next day. I probably did, okay? It, on my bed, this is what I knew. I'm giving my life and my heart to him and that he is now my leader. I wasn't saying I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, all this church stuff. I didn't know what the church stuff was, the things I ought to do and ought not to do. I didn't know any of it. And in my relationship with Jesus over the next several months, there were things that I began to feel incredibly uncomfortable about in my life. Why? Because religion imposed that on me? No, because of the reality of the Spirit of God working in my life, righteousness. And I bucked at it, and I kicked against that, and I resisted it for a, the better part of a year. And so what I'm saying is this journey that I've been on, I don't know what journey we've been on, you've been on, this is the only journey I know is following Jesus and allowing him deeper and deeper into my heart, saying yes, 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 yes. That's all, that's all I know. That's what this thing is, is what I'm trying to say. And if we can make this thing simple and not do our 12 steps of good Christianity, but get back to Jesus, what are you saying to me? And uh, my friend Craig, I, I want to say this to you, even as we're, as we're here and something that stuck out, just came to me during worship. Um, I'm not meaning to put you on the spot. I hope it's okay. We're kind of a small crowd right now, so I'm feeling kind of intimate. And, and I would say this to everybody in here. I know that there's some, we, need, we should pray for Michelle, his wife, by the way, later on. But I want to encourage you, Craig, and everybody in this room, the solution, the safe place, the place of breakthrough for you and for Michelle is that place of the sweetness of his presence. And if, you can, and if we're in that place of the presence of God, hearing and receiving what he's saying to us, even if we're not seeing the solution, we're in the place, in the only place that we need to be. And surely the solution will come out of any other place but that. And if we can make our home in the sweetness of his presence where we're hearing what he's saying and receiving it, that that is, even if the circumstances haven't changed yet, or whatever the case may be, even if Lazarus is still dead in the tomb and it still stinks, if I'm in his presence and I know what he's saying to me and I'm yielding my heart to that, that will lead to what I need. That'll, that'll preach. <laughs> that was kind of cheesy. Fourthly and lastly, true heart. This is perhaps to me maybe the most significant, the most important. So we, having boldness to enter, let us draw near. Boldness, new and living way, but finally, a true heart. It says, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Yet again, can I ask the question, what got us into the problem in the first place is that we step out from 
Submission. We, we step away from the leadership and the governance of God. We default to that place because it requires faith and it requires us losing our control and it requires us putting our confidence in something that we don't see and it's uncomfortable to, to our, our natural being. And the Bible is saying that we enter in, but we don't just enter in any which way we want. We enter in with a true heart. And that word true otherwise is translated as being sincere. And, that, and the idea is that we're drawing near with a sincere, a sincerity of heart of true worship. In other words, it's ultimately about the drawing in with the declaration of this. Jesus, you are my Lord. And I enter into this place of the presence of God surrounded by my confession that he is Lord. That is the foundation of the gospel. And if you don't believe me, Acts 2, 36, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. The first time the gospel was ever preached after Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Spirit, spills out into the streets of Jerusalem, and he preaches this amazing message about the person of Jesus, and it ultimately comes to this final point, let all, uh, excuse me, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, Lord and Christ. When the people first received the gospel, the first time it had ever been heralded, what were they receiving? Because they weren't receiving that come down to the altar and let the pastor lay his hands on you and receive Jesus as your personal Savior. I mean, he is our personal Savior. They were receiving and responding to the proclamation that God has made Jesus Lord. That is the way into the presence of God. And when we come with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, it is standing on that same confession. In fact, every step we make further in the kingdom of God and the purpose of God for our lives is a yet a deeper and deeper confession. Jesus, you are my Lord. Jesus, you are my Lord. Every step of faith that we take is ultimately going deeper into that truth that Jesus is supreme in authority. And his authority is benevolent. It's good. It's not to squash us down. And some of us have had bad authority figures in our lives and we struggle to receive the message of authority. But I want to say that Jesus' authority looks like that for you. Sacrificial lifting you up so that you can be all that the Father has made you to be. But it will never happen outside of a place of his lordship. Having said that, Jason, could I ask you to come up and I want to uh, invite us to come in boldly to the holiest of holies by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. And I want to ask, could we sincerely present ourselves uh, to him in this moment? If you, if you, if you wouldn't mind, if you, if, you, if you find it better to worship this way, if you could want to stand with me. <clears throat> I don't want to ask you to stand because if you would prefer to worship sitting down, there is nothing in the scripture that will deny you that right and say that that is wrong in any stretch of the imagination. But what I want to ask <clears throat> is, could we present ourselves to this Jesus right now on a practical level, as in 
Lord, I want to be in your presence. I want to seek you, but I want to seek you. I don't want to seek the feelings of your presence. I want to seek you. I want to draw near to you. I want to surrender my heart and my life and come out of hiding and out of the, the running and the resisting that we so easily do every single one of us in this room. And I want to run rather to you and I want to hear what you are saying. Now in this moment, you may not feel like you hear Jesus speak to you and that's fine. I guarantee you this. If you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you are sincerely seeking Jesus and his truth and his presence, being with him, you will find it. In fact, that Catholic priest, that was the thing that he said to me the day that I gave my heart to him, that was the revelation that he shared to me. I, if you don't know how to find him, he says if you seek him, you will find. And that led to my salvation. And I want to say today, that truth still exists. You seek him right in this moment. You want to hear him. You want to know what he's saying to you. You open your heart right now in a place of submission. You will find. And he will lead you. Let's worship him and see what he wants to do.